Dear God, Lord, we love you. We thank you. It has been a full morning, a beautiful morning already. And as we pause, as we reflect, would you speak to us today? In Jesus' name, amen. So our littlest munchkins have already introduced us. We're in a series called The Songs of Christmas. And the little ones already previewed what our Christmas carol is that we're diving into this morning, which is Go Tell It on the Mountain. Let's see. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. Good, you guys got it. So this Advent, we're paying close attention to the carols we sing as we prepare room in our hearts, in our homes, in our city for Jesus this holiday season. Christ has come. Christ is coming. And in these truths, we glory every time the weather seems to turn cold. But what does that mean for those of us who walk this earth? You see, on first blush, Go Tell It on the Mountain is a simple song. It it appears to be a quick retelling of what the shepherds of Bethlehem experienced that first Christmas, as detailed for us in Luke chapter 2. The carol is short, it's sweet, but it's infectious. And I suspect the power rests not in the words themselves, but in something else. So we've been doing a little participatory messages this Advent season. So on your sermon notes, on the back uh, are some questions. On the front are the lyrics. And I want you to just sit for 60 seconds with the with the lyrics, the melody, the rhythm of this song, and I want you to try to jot down your thoughts to these two questions. How does this carol make you feel? Think back to our kids singing it for us. What words would you use to describe the emotions of this song? You might also notice that there's two additional but original verses, which you might not be familiar with, Allow them to to color how you experience the song. So I'm going to give you about 60 seconds to kind of reflect and to process, uh, and then I'll come back and ask a few of you to share. So take a minute. How does this carol make you feel? What words would you use to describe the emotions of this song? A few people? Yeah, Ryan. Triumphant joy. Triumphant joy. Anyone else? What this carol makes you feel. A few bold folks. Yes, in the back. Jane. Pardon? That the sharing of my faith should be a joyful, exciting thing. Yes, that the sharing of our faith should be a joyful, exciting thing. One more person. How does this carol make you feel? What are the emotions of this song? I was like, you can't volunteer someone else. Okay. Any, one more? One more? Dance before the Lord. There is a celebration, a jubilation in this song. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm excited to dive into this week's carol because it is a homegrown Christmas song. On your sermon notes, I've credited the song to John Wesley Work Jr., but it's more appropriate to call Work and his relatives the song's curators rather than its authors. 
You see, Work grew up the son of an African-American choir director in Nashville, Tennessee. And he and his wife Agnes and his brother Frederick and then his son John, they all inherited John Sr.'s deep passion to collect, preserve, and publish the plantation songs, the spirituals that uh, helped articulate the experience of black folk in America. And now many of Work's contemporaries wanted to forget anything associated with the dark days of slavery. But this family thought it important to learn from the faith of their ancestors and to share with coming generations these indigenous songs of defiant hope and Christmas and Christian worship. They also prayed that through gospel singing, the Lord might knit together his church, his divided church, in love and unity and justice. You see, John Wesley Work Jr., he would go on to study music at Nashville's Fisk University and the classics at Harvard. And after graduation, he returned to the segregated South, recognizing his community's need for education and spiritual uplift. So he took a position at his alma mater. He became professor of history and Latin, and he also became the director of the school's famed Jubilee Singers. You see, the Jubilee Singers were a 10-member vocal ensemble, and their name invokes the year of Jubilee, spoken of in Leviticus 25, when all debts were canceled, lands returned, and slaves free. You see, their special ministry was sharing the spiritual songs of their forefathers and mothers with those who had never recognized them as true brothers and sisters in Christ. And in an era when African Americans were uh, only able to travel, most of them, a few miles from their place of birth, Work and the Fisk Jubilee Singers, they toured the globe. They sang before Queen Victoria in England, before President Chester Arthur in the White House. Their fundraising efforts single-handedly saved their university from insolvency. And as one author has put it, their music revealed a passion for life and living that few people had ever experienced. And they became a monumental force in first exposing the musical talents of African Americans. Yet one of their most enduring legacies was introducing us to today's carol, which was drawn from the private Christmas celebrations of slaves on the plantation, slaves who resonated with the wonder and the response of lowly shepherds to their heaven-sent good news. So why might those suffering in slavery identify with the experience of Bethlehem shepherds. There's some space on your sermon notes to kind of jot down some thoughts. But we read the Christmas story and our hearts, we get kind of warmed by the cozy pastoral setting. Yet we miss that Luke situates this narrative in kind of the stark historical and cultural realities of human existence. It begins this way, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. You see, the good news of great joy that will be for all people came 
to a downtrodden populace living under an oppressive regime. And those names, Augustus and Quirinius, they carried a political charge. Jews living in the land after the exile had long struggled against domination from Syria. And now their sons and their grandsons were again governed by a man in Syria, but this time that man was a representative of imperial Rome. And this foreign control, it was not just a political issue for those kind of directly involved with politics. No, the, the subjugation reached down and touched ordinary Jews in their everyday lives. Because the Jews were not a free people, a pregnant woman had to take a cross-country journey while pregnant and give birth far from home. What's more, according to historians, the census had a sinister implication for those living in the ancient world. A census was an inventory of all of a region's wealth, its people, its crops, its animals, so that the empire might tax the conquered nation to the maximum. It also alerted the Romans to how many, what was the relative strength of the region so they would know how many battle-hardened legionnaires to station there so they could keep the population pacified. You see, a new census was a fearful thing. It meant an announcement of greater poverty and exploitation to come. And not all took it lying down. There were some in Galilee who refused to comply with this particular imperial registration. And they rose up in violent revolt under a man named Judas. But his rebellion was short-lived and all of the agitators were crucified. So strip a little romance out of your vision of the shepherds. These were men and women who lived under the thumb of others Even their own countrymen treated them with contempt. They were regarded as dirty and morally compromised and ethically suspect. They spent their lives outdoors suffering suffering all sorts of indignities and deprivations because they wanted to protect their flock. But now their sheep, their livelihood, all they held dear was threatened by wolves. But they weren't four-legged beasts It was the mighty power of Rome, and they were powerless to resist, for Rome was so strong. So I imagine that our enslaved brothers and sisters in early America discerned in the story of the shepherds some resonance with their own experience. They may have recognized kindred spirits, fellow travelers, and they marveled that these marginalized figures stood center stage at Jesus' arrival. You see, the original first verse of Go Tell on the Mountain reads, When I was a seeker, I sought both night and day. I asked the Lord to help me, and He showed me the way. It's unstated what these first singers were seeking from the Lord. Were they seeking comfort in their oppression? Were they seeking some confirmation that God was present with them in their suffering and still at work in the world? Were they seeking welcome and belonging into the family of God? 
Were they seeking the, the downfall of an evil regime and deliverance from their bondage? We're not told, but we know according to the song that they find their answer in the Lord and in the story of Bethlehem's shepherds. Verse 8, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The glory of the Lord. That's the the visible presence of God in kind of our earthly existence. That shining glory, it was associated with awesome events in Israel's past. The, The burning bush, the giving of manna, in the wilderness, God giving the law on the top of Mount Sinai, Him meeting and communing with His people in the tabernacle. And the prophets promised that one day when God makes all things new, that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And now here God's glory dazzles, but it doesn't dazzle in the temple in Jerusalem, which is nearby. It doesn't even dazzle around the manger. And the newborn child, it radiates, God's glory radiates over the fields and the hills of Bethlehem. It's put on display for the lowly and the downtrodden, the very least in the land. But this is in character for God. Do you know who receives the first ever angelic visitation in Scripture? Anyone? It's not a king. It's not a priest. It's not a prophet. It's not a patriarch. It is the angel of the Lord first appears to a slave woman named Hagar. Impregnated by her master, Hagar had to run away in the face of ill treatment, having decided that it was better to die alone in the desert rather than live under persecution. And it was there that God met her. There he administered his care and his comfort. He spoke into her life good news. He pronounced for her a future and a hope. And she left the interaction with a new name for this God, the same God whom her master had worshipped and did worship. She says this in Genesis 16.13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. Now angels visit these shepherds in their distress. They proclaim a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this terrible fear that they're experiencing, the messengers say, will be overcome with great joy. Because God is acting to bring wholeness, to show His divine favor, and it will be for all people, especially those at the very bottom. Those trampled and forgotten, the long-suffering and afflicted, 
those ground down by violent and unjust systems. And this Savior won't just be another earthly deliverer, another promising candidate to rally behind. He will be Christ the Lord, God with us, meeting us in the muck. What a beautiful paradox. Down in the lowly manger, the humble Christ was born, and He sent a salvation that blessed Christmas morn. A baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. There's another Christmas carol that celebrates the same point, and I want to share at least a portion of it with you this morning because it's a shame how few people know it. And it's a hard one to sing, so I don't think I'm going to sing it, but I'll read you the lyrics. It's called A Child of the Poor. And it goes like this. Helpless and hungry, lowly afraid, wrapped in the chill of midwinter, comes now among us, born into poverty's embrace, new life for the world. Who is this who lives with the lowly, sharing their sorrows, knowing their hunger? This is Christ revealed to the world in the eyes of a child, a child of the poor. Bring all the thirsty, all who seek peace. Bring those with nothing to offer. Strengthen the feeble. Say to the frightened heart, fear not. Here is your God. Who is this who lives with the lowly, sharing their sorrows, knowing their hunger, This is Christ revealed to the world in the eyes of a child. A child of the poor. That child who is new life for the world would grow up. And in one of his first sermons, Luke records this. And Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. God, our God, a child of the poor, preaches jubilee to those held in bondage and poverty's embrace to those with nothing to offer, to the lowly, the hungry, those who seek peace, to them especially the glory of God has been revealed. To them and to us a child has been born. Yet the power of Go Tell It on the Mountain rests in the incredible response of the downtrodden to this proclamation of good news. The moment the angels disappear, the initiative of God's unfurling plan of salvation transfers to them. And they embrace the task of Herald with gusto. And in the Gospels, we see the shepherds, they react in four distinct ways. Verse 15, And the angels went away from them into heaven. When the angels went away from them into heaven, The shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. 
And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. You see, first they go. They go not in order to believe, but because they do believe. Second, they see. They want to witness the arrival of this little Lord Redeemer. They want to experience His presence for themselves. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. You see, once the shepherds go and see, once they've experienced Jesus instantly, they begin to give witness, to make known what they've seen and heard. They announce and share God's good news. A Savior is here, new life for the world. The status quo is a change, and soon there will be no more brokenness, no more bondage, no more domination by evil and sin. Jesus, the liberator, has come. And for me, this brings to mind Jesus' final words to us at his ascension, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Last, the shepherds respond with rejoicing. There's no sense of burden, but a whole lot of praising God for these life-giving tidings. Hope and redemption for those in desperate need. Glory, glory, glory. So now back to our carol. He made me a watchman upon the city wall. And if I am a Christian, I am the least of all. Go tell it on the mountain. Over the hills and everywhere, go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. We can hear our enslaved brothers and sisters adding their own spin to the shepherd's response. The tidings of Christmas have not only given them hope, the news of Jesus' arrival has transformed their sense of identity and calling. It's propelled them forward into a new mission of life. There's no mountains in the Christmas story, though. There's no watchmen on the city walls. This is the original singers of Go Tell It on the Mountain, finding their place as Jesus' people within the promises of God. That refrain, Go Tell It on the Mountain, it's drawn from the Old Testament passages in which praise to God for His acts of deliverance were often shouted both literally and metaphorically from the mountaintops. We read this in Isaiah 42, verses 11-13. through Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. There is something beautifully subversive about all of this. These slaves who are not considered people or human by their sin-sick society They're discovering their central calling as heralds in God's kingdom. They have a role to play in the unveiling 
of what God is doing in the world. They're partners in this mission. And in this moment, they are announcing that Jesus, the humble Savior, has roused himself. In his zeal, he will show himself mighty against his foes, against the powers of evil, sin, and death. In the case of the original singers, Jesus will stir himself to deal with and put an end to their economic and their spiritual exploitation. He will humanize the dehumanized. He will break their chains. I doubt the masters realized when they heard the slaves raising this chorus in their private Christmas celebrations what they were praising Christ for. He was their hope for redemption and jubilee. Not just one day at the end of history, but even now in their toil and oppression. And I'm reminded that the shepherds too, they had to wait over 30 years for anything to come from that holy night when Christ was born. And they continued to wait, even as they shared their tidings of great news. Yes, the census was carried out. Yes, their burden of suffering increased. Things got worse under Rome. Their exploitation was magnified, yet they knew that these were the last desperate gasps of a crashing kingdom. Jesus, the Savior, was already here and at work. You see, I think that line, too, about the watchman is particularly telling. It comes from Isaiah 21 in a chapter about God's coming judgment against oppressive nations. God tells the prophet, For the Lord said to me, Go set a watchman. Let him announce what he sees. And these Christian slaves, they see themselves as God's watchmen. Like the shepherds, they've been clued in on God's good news. Then he who saw cried out, Upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day. And at my post I am stationed whole nights. They wait to hear that pronouncement of jubilee, of of judgment against all that that inflicts pain and evil. And folks in the book of Isaiah, they call out to them there on the city walls. They say, watchmen, what time of the night? Watchmen, what time of the night? In other words, how many hours of darkness are left? And the watchman says, morning comes and also the night If you will inquire, inquire, come back again. Morning comes. There still might be some darkness left, but keep coming back because it grows shorter and shorter. Or as the Apostle John would say, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. I even like that bit about if I am a Christian, I am the least of all. So many told these slaves they were nothing, they were nobodies, but they choose to own it, for they know that there's upside-down logic in God's kingdom. When God is king, angels visit slaves. The glory of God is revealed to smelly shepherds, and a Savior is born in a manger who declares that the first will be last and the last will be first. In God's world, being the least Ain't half bad. So I want you guys to think and reflect this week on this song. How does the inclusion of this first and last verses color your singing of this carol? 
as you discover the song's context, how does it add meaning to your singing? You see, this song, it continues to have a rich life in the black church. At sometimes it's sung at Easter. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus lives again. It was sung during the civil rights movement. They added some stanzas. Uh, I wouldn't be Governor Wallace. I'll tell you the reason why. I'd be afraid that he might call me and I wouldn't be ready to die. They're invoking Jesus as the judge who will call all people and nations to account. Jesus is the one among us who is the most passionate about justice. Jesus is the one who saves the downtrodden and brings newness and life to the world. The song has also been used to remind us of our missionary calling as Christians. If you cannot sing like angels... If you cannot pray like Paul, you can tell the love of Jesus. You can say he died for all. The tidings of Christmas, the arrival of Jesus, it ought not only warm our hearts, it ought to change our present, it ought to color the future we celebrate and which we work towards in partnership with the Holy Spirit. It's good news of great joy that will be for all people there is a savior who is christ the lord and we've gotten to know him this child of the poor this humble carpenter and we've been known by him and it is he who sets all things right he who establishes and will establish peace and justice and jubilee in the practical realities of our world It is He who restores humanity's relationship and standing before God. It is Jesus that makes all things beautiful and new once again. So now we got to go. And we have to shout it at the top of our lungs. we got to carry this news wherever our feet will take you. Christ loves you. Christ is coming. Christ died so that you might live. He's forgiven and He is making our world new. It might look dark out there, but go tell it on the mountain. He's already here. He's already begun. The darkness is passing. And the true light has already come. Amen? Well, let me pray as we go out singing this song together. Dear Father God, it is an honor to slow down and to let other believers from other times and places, life experiences and situations teach us to hear with fresh ears your gospel. Your gospel that changes us changes our eternity, changes our world. And God, may the infectious joy and triumph and victory and dancing that is in the heart of this song permeate our lives. We are good news people. And we overcome because you have overcome. 
And God, may we always remember your heart for the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed. For this is good news for them too. The glory of the Lord shines and we all see it. But how sweet are the feet that bring good news. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.